This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. Hello there and welcome to episode two of Helen and Bill do Retro Cinema. And after our first episode was so popular, uh, we've decided to go backwards in time again. So our first episode was from 1957. Today's episode is all about 1952. And of course, joining me once again on this wonderful magical trip is the beautiful Helen. Hello, beautiful Helen. Hello, lovely Bill. Here I am, ready to, I don't know, hold on for dear life while we're doing more 50s movies. Oh, OMG. <laughs> well, you can hold your thoughts on 50s movies till a little bit later in the program, perhaps. Okay. Um, so, yes, we uh, went for five films uh, that were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Film in 1952, and we watched all of them. And... Uh, Overall, without going into too much detail, how did you find the quality of film from 1952? Um, I guess for 1952, I thought the quality was to be expected. It wasn't as good as 1957, but when did TV start in Australia? 1950-something. 1956. Yeah, so it was before then. So, yeah, it was ordinary quality. Um, some of the movies I'd heard of, so I was interested in seeing them. Yeah, it was... I'm glad I saw them. All right. Well, <laughs> let's get stuck into it. And the first film we watched was called High Noon. So, High Noon is a 1952, strangely enough, seeing as we're doing 1952, American Western film, which occurs in real time, centering on a town marshal whose sense of duty is tested when he must decide to either face a gang of killers alone or leave town with his new wife. It stars Gary Cooper, Lloyd Bridges, Grace Kelly, and Katie Gerardo. The screenplay was written by Carl Foreman, based on the short story The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham, and it's directed by Fred Zinnemann. Helen, what did you think of High Noon? The exciting story of High Noon. Well, I was looking forward to seeing it because I like westerns normally. Yeah. So, yeah. Westerns are good. Yeah. Um, so you hadn't seen it before? No. no. Had you? No, I hadn't. Yeah. No. And that's what, that's what, sort of why I picked on it 52, I think, mainly for this film, because I was really interested to see what it was like. Yeah. And I enjoyed Gary Cooper's, yeah, Gary Cooper's character, Grace Kelly's character. I liked seeing the town, the western town, and I liked seeing, you saw the old train lines and the station and... The sort of prairie around it, that was good. Um, but I didn't go much on the story, really. Right. What, was the, what, what did you think was the problem with the story? Uh, it was predictable, very mm-hmm. predictable. But it was 1952. Well, there are a lot of stories that are always predictable. I mean, and that's most of the time with those kind of movies, it's just how well they do it, I guess. 
Like, when you watch the film, and as you said, it starts off with the marriage of um, Marshall Kane and his, his wife, um, yeah. Grace Kelly's character, uh, Amy Fowler. Um, and then you hear that the bad guy, Frank Miller, is coming into town on the, on the noon train. And you sort of think, oh, well, okay, so he's going to be here. He's going to fight Frank Miller and he's the hero, so he's probably going to win. So you sort of know, I guess, what's going to happen in that respect. Yeah. And then is and that he's going to be left on his own to fight the fight. That's, that's right. Kind of, you get the gist of that pretty early on too. Yeah, they... he's going to be left high and dry at high noon. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, so yeah, I guess it's it's how well you do that story, um, and how well the actors are in it. So, um, you said watching the movie that you liked the character of Helen Ramirez. Yes. And, and the way that she was portrayed, so... She was able to uh, sort out her own destiny. Mm. I liked that about her. So her character was interesting because she'd initially been with the bad guy, Frank Miller, and then the marshal put him in a jail, and then she was apparently with the marshal, <laughs> and yep. then and then he moved on to... Grace Amy. Kelly. That's right. Amy, and then So then she was more or less shacking up with... The deputy marshal, played by Lloyd Bridges. Yep. So. Who was the younger, cuter version? Yes. Really. So yes, she uh, certainly knew the men of the town. Perhaps mm-hmm. is the best way to put mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, what I liked most, probably not most, but what I, the, one of the things I really enjoyed about the film was that it was done in real time, and that um, so the film goes for about an hour and a half, and that's the time that's when the train's coming in at midday. Uh, on the noon train, and you can see they shoot, they cut away to the clocks every so often during the action, and that comes up and it shows you that the time's clicking down to noon. So it's more or less in real time through the the film. So, um, coming up with that story to make sure that it felt like everything that was happening was happening in that very short space of time, as it turns out, and not being too dull or whatever. I think that's that's it was very well done. I enjoyed that part of it. Um, I know that having read up on it afterwards, there was a couple of things that came up. Firstly, it was it was seen as un-American at the time when it was released um, because they felt that it was un-American that no one would uh, choose to help the marshal. Well, there were a couple of people, I guess, but they both pretty much backed out at the end anyway. Yeah. yeah. And that uh, there's it was felt that there was it was a uh, a politically motivated film, which I didn't really get out of it at all. But I guess seventy years on, <laughs> we don't really know. Um, and it was regarding communism and the blacklisting at the time that was happening through the American system, the American films especially. But who was seen as communist in that? Film? Well, that's just. Well, I'm only telling you what I've read. Mm. They've said that they felt that that was making a political statement, um, and I didn't really get that out yeah. of it at all. So, um, I think it was interesting too that um, when we looked at. The characters, when he was going around, when, when Marshall Kane was going around looking for people to help him, why would there be so few people that would stand up with him? Because, I mean, there was the, the three guys, three bad guys who'd ridden into town and he'd said Frank Miller's coming in on the noon train. So that's four people. So there's only four bad guys. Surely, if you get together 10 or 12 people, you'd think the numbers alone would be enough to at least 
scare them off or whatever it is, but no one was willing to stand up. So they must have had a reputation as being sharpshooters and well, they, know, or getting you being very vengeful later and getting you later. And well, we understand it because Marshall Kane had obviously put Frank Miller in jail, so that's why he had, he had got out of jail and now he's coming back to extract revenge. Um, it just seemed like a really strange plot point that no one would stand up with him at all. Anyway, uh, I thought, yes, I really enjoyed the film. I thought the um, the actors were great. Gary Cooper, I haven't seen Gary Cooper in many things, so that was that was interesting. I thought he played the part well. Lloyd Bridges is a very young Lloyd Bridges in the film, yeah. was all, as good as he always is. Grace Kelly was, eh, for me, she was, eh, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't like the character much. Either. No, the, she didn't do much, did no, she? No, no. She was Once again, there to look pretty. Yeah. And, and that, she did look pretty. Yes. And, uh... But overall, I thought it was really good. So I gave this film three and a half stars. Well, I did not. Yeah. Because I've watched so many films from the 50s. I'm very jaded by the treatment of women. <laughs> and I know that everyone must be getting sick of me saying that. So we're going to move on from the 50s, everybody. Because <laughs> I can't seem to live with it. And to me, it seems like the 50s cinema is dominated by directors who just want to straight stroke male egos and it's all about the white males and yeah I can't warm to these films because of it um so I only gave it one star and I've written down nothing that says Oscar winner to me well there you go well this film was actually nominated for seven Academy Awards best picture of course uh, best director best actor best screenplay best film editing best scoring of a of a dramatic or comedy picture and Best Song. And it won four awards. Did it? Believe it or not. Best Song. It won Best Song in a Film. I don't even remember the song. Uh, I can't remember what it's called now. It's mm. one we knew. Yeah. Uh, best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. So I, I suppose the, the music in that was, was fine like yeah, in, in fine. creating the drama. Uh, best Film Editing, which was probably a little bit funny. And Gary Cooper won Best Actor for his role in this film. So. Everyone loved Gary Cooper then. They did, certainly in those days. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, there you go. So that was High Noon, everybody. And the second film we watched was Ivanhoe. And Ivanhoe is a 1952 British-American historical adventure epic film based on the 1819 historical novel Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott the story of one of the remaining Anglo-Saxon noble families at a time when the nobility in England was overwhelmingly Norman. It follows the Saxon protagonist, Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe, who was out of favour with his father for Sir Wilfred's allegiance to the Norman king, Richard the Lionheart. The story is set in 1194 after the failure of the Third Crusade, when many of the Crusaders were still returning to their homes in Europe King Richard, who had been captured by Leopold of Austria on his return journey to England, was believed to still be in captivity. Helen, tell us all about Ivanhoe. Well, I liked the history of it because, you know, it was in the times of Robin Hood and the Sherwood Forest and all of that sort of thing. Uh, And finding out about the Saxons and the Normans and King Richard and... Yeah. Historically, it yeah. was very good with that kind of yeah. stuff, talking about Saxons and Normans and the Jews. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I liked the beginning when, I don't even know who it was, was riding around on the horse playing the mandolin or something, oh, uh, looking yeah. looking <laughs> for the king who yeah. was in exile somewhere uh, and was in Austria. Well, that was his. Somewhere. That was Ivanhoe who was, was doing it? that. Okay, okay, yeah. there you go. 
<laughs> just just to get that straight. That was actually the, the, the protagonist. main character. Yeah, that's right. I don't remember now. We didn't know he was Ivanhoe at the time. Hey. Yeah. Um. It was all right. So it stars Robert Taylor as the uh, as uh, Ivanhoe, uh, Elizabeth Taylor in one of her very early roles, Joan Fontaine and George Sanders. The screenplay was written by Anais McKenzie, Noel Langley and Marguerite Roberts, who initially was blacklisted and was not listed as a writer of this film, but was reinstated some years later. Oh, so that's what you're kind of talking about in the last film. Well, there was a people, lot of... A lot of actors and people involved with film were most, black, mostly blacklisted writers. because they were communists. Mostly writers. Ah, yeah. okay. Because they, they, they wouldn't... Because they wouldn't um, tell anyone who their supposed communist friends were, so they were... More or less blacklisted from actually working. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, she was later reinstated on the film. And as I said, it was based on the novel by Sir Walter Scott and it was directed by Richard Thorpe. thought I'd better get all that information in too. Yeah, so like I said, one of the interesting parts about it was the fact that we had the, the Jews and the Saxons and the Normans and we had the upper class and we had the lower class. Yeah. We had all sorts of people in the movie and historically it was probably um, something that people who do that kind of history modern history or ancient history or whatever they want to call that period of time at school it's it's probably a good movie to watch because it, it does explain that a lot better than um, most history books do yeah yeah um so walter scott of course obviously was a terrific writer and, and it was uh, a historical writer as well well we didn't even know where he was exiled till we watched this did we as in uh oh sorry richard, richard the lionheart yeah. no not really it's never yeah. really been brought up in any yeah. Because most of the this is the thing because obviously Robin Hood is in this who is called Robin of Loxley here it's not even brought up the fact that he's called Robin Hood yeah. so since this basically everything that is written or filmed on this era is all about Robin Hood and his bunch of merry men but in this film he took a back seat to everything it was Ivanhoe did all this yeah, all, he all was the heroic a very, stuff he was a very minor character yeah he was and um and like other characters who were in his band of merry men were were not even mentioned, whereas they're the stars in all everything else that's yeah. brought up. So I enjoyed that part as well. Yeah, I think. me too. And the, the the role of Robert of Loxley was actually very good. It, it showed that he was heroic and that he was there doing the right thing, but it wasn't robbing the rich to give to the poor and all that kind of stuff. He was just sticking up for the right things. Yep. Um, I thought the battle scenes were really well done. The uh, jousting and all that, that kind of stuff. Of stuff. Yeah, Terrifically was. filmed and well, really well done. I mean, of course, there's no special effects in those days, so... You've got people on horses coming at you and using their jousting sticks and, and their shields and actually having to do that. So the stuntmen in that, I thought, did terrifically well. Um, and the crowds. They had the crowds. Well, the charging of the castle by yeah. Robin Hood's men yeah. when uh, and the Saxon army, like when, when they were being captured and held inside the castle. That was all really well done. You could see the arrows, you know, were sort of thrown in and <laughs> didn't really have the, yeah. quite, the same velocity that they would normally have. But I just thought that all that was done really well as well. Uh, and the final duel between Ivanhoe and uh, Du Bois Gulbert um, was very well done as well. You know, when they were on their horses and they were beating the crap out of each other with their chosen weapons. And I just thought all of that, for the time, was just really well done. I, I enjoyed all of that. Yeah, me too. I haven't got much more to say about it. Okay. Um, so, all right, well, in that case, what, what did you give it? Uh, I I gave it two and a half stars, mainly for the history. Yep. That's what I got out of it. Yep. Yeah. I gave it two and a half stars as well. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I enjoyed all that kind of stuff. It probably went a bit long. Um, and, you know, 
the love scenes, which aren't love scenes, sorry, but the scenes between Ivan Ho and his two separate women, sort of, to me, that just slowed everything down and just get on with it, get on with the action. You're like that in modern day well, things abs- as well. You abs- never like those scenes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. We agreed on the movie, though. But I think that's the first time. Uh, probably the last time, too. Yeah, maybe. Uh, this was nominated for three Academy Awards, of course, Best Picture. Also, Best Cinematography in Colour, because, of course, in those days, there was uh, black and white films still quite prominent. So there's two... Was it in colour? It was in colour, okay, yes. Okay, see, I've forgotten that. Excellent. In my mind, it's black and white. Fantastic. Yeah, probably because really... it was so grainy and, I don't know, the times. Well, the copy I found was obviously very old and it's the kind right. of copy I could find. That's right. You can't have everything, you know. Oh, it's 70 fine. years ago, far out. How'd you find it? Oh, really? It's a secret. Uh, and best music scoring, uh, didn't win any awards. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes, there you go. Our third film was Moulin Rouge, and it's not the Moulin Rouge you're all thinking about. It certainly isn't. It absolutely is not. More's the pity. The synopsis of this is Moulin Rouge is a 1952 British historical romantic drama film that follows artist Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec in 19th century Paris's bohemian subculture in and around the Moulin Rouge a burlesque palace. It stars Jose Ferrer, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Colette Marchand, with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee actually making cameos, which I didn't know about until after the film was finished. Mm. The screenplay was written by John Huston and Anthony Villa, based on the novel by Pierre Lamour, and directed by John Huston. Helen, tell us all about this Moulin Rouge. Well, I thought it was going to be like the OG, uh, Baz Luhrmann. You realise this is the OG, don't you? Because it's not in 52. That's what I'm saying. I thought it would be the OG of the Moulin Rouge Baz Luhrmann made. Right. But it's not at all. It's nothing to do with that. Nothing like that. No. Um, And then I realised it was all about Toulouse-Lautrec's artwork. But who did I think it was at first? Oh, I can't remember. Someone else. Renoir or I don't know. Yeah, it was someone else. Someone. Anyway, then I was oh yeah, to to little track, and then they showed lots of his art, actual artworks and sketches throughout. So I really enjoyed that. Yep. Um, and the background to Toulouse about how he came from a wealthy background. I've never known that about that artist because I knew that he lived in poverty and yep. was depressed and had a horrible life. So that was a surprise to me. Um, but and, and it's a good snapshot in time. Of that little part of France, I suppose, that little part of Paris. Uh, but I thought it was very sad. So sad and so dark and, yeah, stuck in a rut sort of thing. Well, it didn't seem like he had a, a happy life. Not at all. For someone who, I mean, I'm no art critic, but apparently he's quite famous for his, his artworks. Yeah, in the, the club, um, the Moulin Rouge. In the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, yes. and all the can-can girls and yeah. yeah all of that that's what a lot of his art's about but yeah. but i'm no art critic no so it basically tells <laughs> his life and and, yeah. and then they have flashbacks to his youth when it sees where he has an accident and that he's his parents are actually first cousins so that when he gets operated on they can't fix everything because his parents were doing naughty things wasn't it haemophilia was it yes was that what it he was? suffered from haemophilia yeah yeah so there were but then his bones and his bones wouldn't mend properly yeah. so he only grew he was under five feet in height 
so when they actually did this again without CGI and and Jose Ferrer was yeah, playing him walking that along. Was pretty amazing. They had to put him in different positions to show that he was walking at that height. So that was all very well done. Yeah. Um. And then you know he fell in love with the the street walker yeah. Marie, and uh, that was worked out that she was only there for his money and trying to get money out of him for her boyfriend, and then her boyfriend left her. <laughs> it was all on again, off again. Uh, very sad. And then he. Met up with Miriam, um, who he then falls in love with, but never actually tells her that he's in love with her. And then because he did with the last chick, and he, you know, that didn't work out well. But she was trying to get him to yes. admit it. The and then she through. went off and said, "I'm going to marry this other bloke, and he, he, unless you, uh, I love you, you know, well, if you do love me." And he said, "No, off you go." And then she left a note, I think it was, and yeah. said. That she actually was in love with him, but she'd already gone when he went to find her, and of course that was it. Yeah. And then he died. Didn't end well. What? <laughs> mm. But the scenes in the club and everything were good, weren't they? They, they were. were very real. Oh, the dance yeah. routines and all that kind of stuff yeah. in there. All yeah. the energy. Like you say, a, a very nice snapshot of that yeah. period of time. Um, but he was portrayed as a joyless individual. Like I don't know if he was like that or not, but uh, the way that he was portrayed was that he just was. Awful. A drunk. Yeah. A, a very unhappy drunk. Yeah, exactly and it's right. probably true, and so why would you really make a film about that? No, like, that's right. And look, and I thought... Pretty joyless. I thought Jose Ferrer did a great job, and he is a terrific actor. Like, and, and three or four things I can remember seeing him in, he's just always been fantastic. Um, but he's made him... He's portraying... I don't know if he's that unlikable character or if he was that unlikable person, but to me, that's how it felt. He was portraying him to be a very unlikable person, mm. and yet... It was hard to keep watching. Oh, they? yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So, as much as I enjoyed finding out the story of him, because I knew nothing about him at all before this movie, um, the movie itself was pretty hard to watch. Yeah, it was <laughs> the, the montages of artworks that kind of... They had to put those in, really, yes. to break up the sadness of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there was so much movement and life in the artwork. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, I gave this two stars. So did I, Oh, you? there you go. I gave it two stars for the artworks. Right. <laughs> I gave probably two stars just for the for the story itself of his life and, and, and actually learning something about yeah. you know, his life and uh, apart from that, not much else, Yeah. So this, too, was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Really? Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Jose Ferrer, Best Supporting Actress for Colette Marchand, uh, Best Art Direction in Colour, uh, Best Costume Design in Colour. That's true, the costumes And Best Film Editing. So it won two awards for Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. Yeah, okay. So you can see that, I think, yeah. in the film that... that of the other films we saw, that was the one where yeah, that's that true. costume design and art direction, that was all very well done. And then Baz Luhrmann and Catherine, whatever her name is, with their costuming and art direction and well, everything. They, for that was all a whole different story, wasn't it? In the 90s, it? was it? Yes. Yeah. They, they built on that, didn't they? Yeah. Very much a different story. Jar Jar was good. I liked Jar Jar. She was. I thought, yeah. And I thought uh, the other two act- actresses were good in, yeah. in their roles as well as those characters. Yeah. But again, just the story is... Drab. Yeah, not a nice story. So it makes it hard to watch a film when it's, the story's not particularly nice. Agreed. We agreed on two. Who would have Two thought? out of three. Okie dokie, well we've got film number four now for you. 
And film number four is called The Quiet Man. So The Quiet Man is a 1952 American romantic comedy drama film about a retired American boxer who returns to the village of his birth in 1920s Ireland, where he falls for a spirited redhead whose brother is contemptuous of their union. It stars John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, Ward Bond and Victor McLaglen. The screenplay was written by Frank S. Nugent based on the story by Maurice Walsh and it's directed by John Ford. I didn't know what to expect going into The Quiet Man. I sort of thought that I was going to be wasting my time. What did you think of the film? I was When I thought of it, I thought, oh, Quiet American, Quiet Man. Maybe it's going to be a bit like that. Um, and I hadn't seen John Wayne in anything except Westerns, so it was refreshing to see him, see him in another role in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was yeah. that was the big thing immediately, wasn't it? It's just seeing John Wayne in a film that's not a Western yeah. and seeing yeah. that, oh, he can act as someone else. Yeah, not just shoot guns and ride horses <laughs> and stuff. And, yeah, yeah. Prilgrim. Uh, I thought... The scenery was beautiful, um, and but I thought the storyline was very, very convoluted. I love how because you, you went straight to the scenery before you said anything about the story, so yeah. that was always going to be a bit of a, a downer for the film. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. It was quite silly in parts, and would go off, and I didn't know where it was going, and I don't know. Yeah, there was lots of um, strange scenes that I was just laughing my head off at. With all the the locals following along people in the street. Like, absurd things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that too. I just seemed like the story was going nowhere. Yeah. The whole time. Like, <laughs> like he arrived, he bought the cottage that he'd, he'd grown up in, that he'd been born in. And then he'd emigrated yeah. to America and then That's came right. back. And then he yeah. made, his, made his claim on Mary Kate. Yeah. So pretty much straight away, just said, you look all right, yeah. you're mine. Yes. Um, and the but, brother went, hell no. That's it. And he didn't want the dowry. But, yep. but you know, but she did, so they that's couldn't get together. That's a source of pride. T- yeah, that's right. And they were arguing over nothing. Yeah, that's the whole right. Time. And you know, she obviously wanted to be with him, but wouldn't be with him because he wouldn't accept the dowry. Yes. Wouldn't fight for the dowry. That and the her brother, brother wouldn't. Give. And her brother, that's right. Her brother wouldn't. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, and that was what it, the main point of it is, isn't it? The, the fact that he wouldn't fight for, and I don't mean physically fight, but he wouldn't actually, um, you know, try to get this dowry. But we find out about two-thirds of the way through the film, that he'd been a boxer in the US and he had accidentally killed a man in the ring. Yeah. And so he, that's why he didn't want to fight anymore. He wasn't interested in physically fighting. He didn't care about money. All he wanted to do was move back to Ireland to where he's had, you know, he'd grew, grown up and he just wanted to have a life have there. a quiet life. That's right. And that was the reason why he did. But she didn't know that. He didn't tell anybody about that. There was the, the vicar in town or the, yep. whatever it was. Who kept articles out of newspapers for, from famous sporting people. Yeah. He, he had scrapbooks. He did, yeah. yeah he'd, he'd, been, he'd follow that. the boxing. So he knew who yeah. it was and yeah. who he was. And he said, you know, don't tell anyone. So he didn't. So... Uh, all this was going on, and you sort of think, oh, Christ, just for goodness sake, just say, you know. Well, firstly, um, Mary Kate, don't worry about your dairy. Obviously, he's got enough money to live on, so you don't need it. And secondly, you know, Sean, just tell everyone that, you know. You don't want to fight anymore because you accidentally killed a man. That's right, the end. Yeah. <laughs> but no. he. And then, after the townsfolk all followed them and 
to to meet up and fight the brother. He he actually did physically fight him. Yes. And everyone was watching and cheering him on and stuff. Yes. Um, and then he was the brother gave him the dowry. Yep. And then he threw it in a fire or something, yeah. didn't he? He threw it and in the fire straight away. away. And then, and then she, she kissed him. Mary Kay and... kissed him and said, I'm going, I'll be going back and make dinner. Yeah. And then they fought each other for 20 minutes. <laughs> this big rambling brawl all the way through the one end of the town to the other and uphill and down dale. And, and then they ended up going and having a drink at the pub. And then finally John Wayne sort of smacks him in the head and knocks him out and says, right, that's it, we're done now. And then they drank some more and then he took him home Best for buddies. Took him yeah. over for dinner. yeah. So, so I don't really know how he was a quiet man. Was it just the fact that he wouldn't fight with yes, his fists? That's, so he that's, must have been quiet. That's what it was about. The fact yeah. that he wouldn't do anything and he was and just I, trying to live a quiet life. I didn't like how she was his possession. I've just got to say. There you go. There and again. I didn't like that he dragged her around the streets and pulled her hair and all that sort of stuff. I know. <laughs> yes. So, be gone, the 50s. Be gone. <laughs> so, um, apparently... From what I've read up later, that that fight scene that went for about fifteen minutes into the fight yeah. is one of the most loved scenes of all time and whatever. And when it comes to movies and people talk about great scenes, I thought it's not that good. It made me laugh because <laughs> it was so ridiculous. Yeah, good because it was yeah. so ridiculous, yeah. and the whole town following them as yeah. they were going. No. Um, and saying hit your wife and stuff. Yes, Give her, slap her around. And That's stuff. right. <laughs> so. Some interesting stuff out of this is that um, John Wayne appeared in about two dozen of John Ford's films. That, oh, okay. Um, so they were always sort of filming together. And this was the first of five films that John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara were in together. Okay. Um, and apparently that they always acted so well on screen, as they did in this. Yeah, they seemed they appeared natural, natural together. Yeah. Um, that there was always um, words said that, oh, they must be having an affair in real life or whatever, but... Apparently the truth is, no, they didn't. They were strictly professional. Correct. Um, and it's amazing, as you said, firstly, the fact that John Wayne saw a film with John Wayne, not in a Western, but Maureen O'Hara, who is one of the, considered one of the great actresses of that era, um, never got nominated for an Academy Award. In all her time? In all her movies and whatever, she never got nominated. Didn't ever get nominated for this. I wonder why. I don't know. Um... All right. Well, what did what what did you rate this? I gave this one two stars mm-hmm. um, for the scenery mainly. <laughs> I gave it two and a half. Um, I I did enjoy a lot of it. Um, you had, <coughs> oh excuse me, um, old uh, who was it the the old bloke, uh, old Olga Flynn, who was the guy who's. The um the book the, the bookie now the guy who, who took John Wayne everywhere who was the also oh, the, yeah. the bookie yeah. and, and there was the the matchmaker almost yeah. that it was I thought he he was very good he was I, it was interesting like so he was played by Barry Fitz, Fitzgerald and there's another guy in there as well who both won Academy Awards before this film for acting um, and as it turns out um, Victor McLaglen was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. He was the guy who played Red, who played the brother. Yep. Um, and he used to be a boxer. Ah, oh, he did have that look about So him. he was a boxer who then became an actor, and he won an Academy Award before this film. Okay. <laughs> but not in this film. Okay. Um, so there was about three or four sort of Academy Award winning actors in this film. Uh, none of them won in this one, though. Okay. There was nominated for seven awards again. Seven, another seven ones. Best Picture, Best Director. 
Best Supporting Actor for Victor McLaglan, Best Art Direction, uh, Best Cinematography in Colour, Best Sound Recording and Best Writing for a Screenplay. It won two. Which I was... did notice the music too, now that you mention it. I yeah. did enjoy the music. So Best Cinematography it won. Oh, there you go. And Best Director for John Ford. Okay. So... Well, yeah, there were a lot of moving parts. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. So Long scenes. They had to get all that kind of stuff in. Yeah. Good. So now we come to our final film from 1952, and it's The Greatest Show on Earth. The Greatest Show on Earth is a 1952 American drama film set in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. The film centres on two trapeze artists competing for the centre ring along with the circus manager and a mysterious clown who never removes his makeup. In addition to the actors, the real Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus's 1951 troupe appears in the film with its complement of 1,400 people, hundreds of animals and 60 railroad cars of equipment and tents. The actors learned their circus roles and participated in the acts. The film's storyline is supported by lavish production values actual circus acts and documentary-style views into the complex logistics behind big-top circuses. That was all a mouthful. It starred Betty Hutton, Cornell Wilde, Charlton Heston, Jimmy Stewart and Dorothy L'Amour. The screenplay was written by Frederick M. Frank, Theodore St. John and Barry Lyndon, based on the story by Frank St. John and Frank Cavett. And it's directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Tell us all about The Greatest Show on Earth, Helen. Well, yeah, you mentioned the documentary style of parts of it. Uh, I loved seeing that when they were actually putting the big top up and down. I liked seeing the animals, the circus animals, although I shuddered at how they were kept, really. Um, but, yeah, then seeing the acts in the big circus, the big top. Um, I don't know, elephants and monkeys and horses and acrobats and trapeze artists and high wire and I don't know all that stuff I really enjoyed that um enjoyed that way more than the actual movie story <laughs> it's funny the story almost sort of became secondary yeah. after a bit didn't it yeah and it's interesting you look back 70 years to how big circuses obviously were in America then it's much bigger it's, than anything we ever saw as and kids it, that's right and it's hard it's hard sort of judging that like in Australia because you just don't have that sort of capability for the circuses but um an amazing amount of equipment and how they used to get from towns to town. Mm, and travel every day, Yeah, really. Yeah. Travel in the night. There would have been no rest for anyone, really. No, and that's exactly right. It's, it's Horrible life. None of that's easy. Um, and, yeah, though obviously, I, I wouldn't say obviously, but you almost felt like if it was done in this day and age that it, it's basically just a documentary and we do these little bits in between. Now, is that really the way they would have written a film or have they written a storyline and they've gotten to the story and they just think, well, this isn't really working out for us. How can we make this better? I oh, know, we'll just get the whole lot in there and we'll just do... Yeah, I wonder how it did start. I don't which, know. Which direction? I'm not really yeah. sure. Um, so Cecil B. DeMille did all the voiceovers for the documentary-style oh, right. stuff. Um, and the real people there, the band was led by the actual, the real um, band master, apparently, and... and the the guy who was doing the spruiking, oh, yeah. the guy who was the actual person doing all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of real people in there. But it is the amazing thing that, that Betty Hutton and Cornell Wilde both learned to do the trapeze 
for this film. Did they really? And Betty Hutton did most of her stuff that's in the film. She actually did it herself. Wow. Uh, and Cornell Wilde did most of his as well. Uh, obviously, probably not up high and certainly not without a net underneath them. But they actually learned that well enough to actually to do it. So that was quite amazing, I think. Yeah, it's admirable. Um, there was an overuse of the word gay in the film. Yeah. It was a gay time and uh, everyone's gay and what are this kind of stuff. that's what they said. It was, the but that's the thing. Watching that film, it. you immediately notice it. Yeah. Because no one would have turned their head at all because in those days gay didn't mean then what it actually means yeah. now. Yeah. And it's quite... Funny, it's almost sort of teenage boy snickery. That's true. <laughs> gay. <laughs> oh, happy and gay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that stood out, which is, yeah, as I mean, it's a sign of the times and, and the, when this was filmed. Um, the chopping and the changing of the coupling of the stars in the story <laughs> of the film. So we start off with uh, Charlton Heston, who is playing the... Um, the head guy, and he's playing Brad. So he, Brad's going out with Holly. He's like the organiser, like overseer yeah. of it all, yeah. isn't he? So he's, he's yeah. he, Brad's going out with Holly. Yep. Who's the trapeze lady. Yes. Yep. And then Cornell Wilde turns up, the great Sebastian. Yeah, the great, not little Sebastian. No, the great, the great Sebastian. Sebastian. And he meets up with Angel, who has obviously been with him before yep. in, in some way. So they sort of they sort of get together, and then of course the great Sebastian decides that Holly's going to be his thing, and she falls in love with him for what he does in the air, and and then he gets injured, and then uh, he comes back and he tries to talk a story because he didn't want her to feel sorry for him, and she said, "I don't feel sorry for you. I'm still going to be with you." Angel goes off with Brad yep. or tries to get with Brad and turn Brad around and whatever it is. And then we have the train accident. And then uh, within, I reckon, five minutes of uh, Sebastian telling Holly that, uh, oh, we're going to get married, uh, Holly's back with Brad. Yep. And Sebastian doesn't care because he's then proposed to Angel. Yep. All within an hour. They're all interchangeable. Train crashes are amazing, <laughs> aren't they? And none of them were offended or no, minded. No, or no, it was just, oh, oh, that's what's happening. This five minutes, that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. That's brilliant. <laughs> so that was, that annoyed me. Um, lots of other stuff, but anyway. Uh, Betty Hutton's voice. My God, that's annoying. That's just too much. I couldn't stand the way she goes on. And, kind of high and whiny. Oh, about everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, that was too much. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and... I thought Jimmy Stewart's role is unusual for a Jimmy Stewart character. Like most of his characters are always, um, oh, how do you put it? He's the straight laced guy. He's you know the one you look at. He's the normal guy. But here, here he plays the guy who's been accused of murdering his wife. Yeah. When in fact it looks as though it's been a mercy killing because she was Euthanasia. sick. Yeah. Yeah. So he's hiding out in the circus, and that's why he never takes the makeup of his face. So he's he's not trying to be recognised. But he was a doctor as well. Um, so of course, when this train accident happens at the end of the film, which is the concluding part of the film, he's got to stay there, and he's got to help try and save Brad's life. And of course, fully fully made up as a clown. That gives him away, and of course, he gets taken away by the FBI at the end. But yeah. I thought his character was different for what he normally 
Yeah. Does. Like I he, thought I thought he was underutilised. Well, he was. In the film. He, he was, but I think I get the feeling that, that was a deliberate thing because he's normally a leading man. Yeah. He's normally the main character. Yeah. And he definitely wasn't here. He was just a, a sort of a bit part, sort of very important to the story as it turns out at the end. Yeah. But you, you just you don't really know that, I guess, until the end that that's coming to happen because he also discovers that Sebastian's hand that he thinks is damaged forever still has fooling and it could possibly be fixed. Yeah. So his role sort of all comes together there at the end. Yeah. Um, they probably could have shortened the film too. Although then we might not have seen all the circus stuff. Well, that stuff. If you just if you take all the circus stuff out, the film goes fifteen minutes. <laughs> True. That's about it. The story. Da, 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 bang. Yeah. <laughs> done. Yeah. So there you go. Um, what did you think? What was what? What, what are you giving it? Or is there um, anything else you wanted to say about not it? Not really. Yeah. I'm giving it two and a half stars just for the trapeze artists and the circus animals. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I I struggle to get between two and a half and three. Probably two and a half. Oh, we've agreed on another. Um, three out of five. I just uh, that was the problem. I mean, um, Charlton Heston's character was just, you know, annoying as well. He didn't. Yeah. He sort of is just hard. Middle of the range the whole time. Hard line, you know. He wasn't yeah. going to change for anyone. Very two dimensional. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah I think that's quite true. Uh, so, you know, interesting that. This was nominated for five Academy Awards, so Best Picture, Best Director, Best Story, Best Costume Design in Colour, and Best Film Editing. So What did it get? It got two. It got Best Story, which I thought was interesting, and it won Best Picture in 1952. Mm. And Maybe for it's, the documentary story. That's, it's, it's somewhat controversial because... Um, in, in the days when it's gone on to TV and that kind of stuff, it's never actually had great viewings, apparently. It's it's never been one of those films that everyone has to watch. Well, with ads, who could sit through it all? But I think we can safely say now, if we get to this point of the podcast, is that none of those five are outstanding films. No, no. None of my... Like, two and a half's the highest. Yeah. And I think that... What a, what a boring it, 1952, uh, year When I looked at all the other films from 1952 yeah. that were released, there's only two films that I knew, which is probably not unusual because I haven't seen it, and I couldn't find anything that was better than that. So obviously it was a barren year. Yeah. Um, some of you out there might know, remember um, Hans Christian Andersen? Hans with Christian Danny Anderson. K. So that was That's in that me. year. And that wasn't... Up there wasn't and not nominated, nominated for anything, no. I remember um, seeing that with my Nana Campbell. Absolutely. I, I, thought, I thought that was all right at the time. Well, it was. For kids, I think it yeah. was. I don't know if adults... I don't no, know if true. It, I reckon it would have dated now if we watched it. Yeah. And The Prisoner of Zender was the only other one that I knew. Um, that and that's... So what okay, it is. Okay, so pretty lacklustre year. I think so. With films. So you may have noticed that there are a lot of awards there that none of those five films won yeah. either. So Best Actress actually went that year to uh, Shirley Booth. For a film called Come Back Little Sheba. I know nothing about it. Best Supporting Actor went to Anthony Quinn in Viva Zapata. Mm-hmm. Who I only know through it being involved in a Seinfeld episode. Being mm-hmm. spoken about. Best Supporting Actress, Gloria Graham for The Bad and the Beautiful. Now Gloria Graham played Angel in The Greatest Show oh, on yeah. Earth. Oh yeah, okay. She was good. She was good in yeah. that. But she wasn't nominated for that. She was nominated for this mm-hmm. other film and she won... Best Supporting Actress for it. Uh, and Best Screenplay also went to The Bad and the Beautiful, to Charles Schnee. So, I wonder why that wasn't up there in that top five. I don't know. Mm. 
and we'll never know because you don't want to see any no, more films. I'm done from with the fifties. My final comment is: Are we done with the fifties yet? <laughs> That's the end of it, everybody. So there you go. That's our five films for nineteen fifty-two. I think. So what did you do? What did you decide was the best of those five films? Oh uh, well, let me look back. I gave Ivanhoe two and a half, and I also gave. The Greatest Show on Earth, two and a half. So they're even for me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, when I think about them, they're pretty even. Yeah. I thought High Noon was the standout of those five mm-hmm. films. I really did think of, of the others. I thought, oh, well, they're okay. Um, did you have any particular favourite for best actor in those films that you saw? Not really. No? Or best actress? Uh, Grace Kelly was good to look at, but... Her acting wasn't great. Mm. Um, maybe maybe the Helen Ramirez. Oh no, probably the, who was the quiet man one again? Maura O'Hara. Maura O'Hara. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I I must admit I thought she was the standout actress in those and she five wasn't films. Even nominated. She wasn't nominated. Yeah. And um, as we said, Shirley Booth won for Comeback Little Sheba, so we'll never know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can see, was it Best Director for Quiet Man, did you say? For John, sorry. Uh, Ford. John Ford, yes. I yeah, said that, John I, I think that that fits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought he, I thought that the direction of that film was, was well done. Yep. Yeah. All right, well, this has been fun. Yeah. And uh, hopefully people who have bothered to listen this far also think it was amusing or fun or maybe informative. And we're going to go to, did we decide the 1970s or the 1980s? Oh, let's not give it away too early. We're we'll leaving soon, this part behind. We'll soon soon find out. And I'm excited about that. Helen's excited, yeah. What's going to happen in the next episode when Helen watches these films? Is, oh, I'm going to have to leave this decade behind too and find <laughs> another decade. Maybe we'll go to the 1920s then, that'll be good. No, we're not going back. Oh, we're not know. going backwards, yeah. That's when it. do we start it from? When did it all start? Oh, nineteen twenty-three or twenty-eight. I think it was the first. Um, we might have Academy to watch. Awards. Maybe do we have to watch five? <laughs> well, you got to find them first. That's the yeah. hard part of this day and age. You're yeah. trying to find them all. I mean, actually, because it's now almost a hundred years from these films, they're actually yeah. allowed to sort of put them out in the moratorium on them. Um, the copyright is all sort of. Ends after a hundred years, does it? Yeah, or ninety years, maybe it okay. might even. I can't remember. But, and uh, maybe we'll we will have finished these podcasts. By, what in ninety by years? By twenty twenty eight. Twenty twenty eight. When it is a hundred years. See how we go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, lovely Helen. Thank you, wonderful Bill. Wonderful and, William. And thank you to everyone who has bothered to listen this far. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we also hope that. Not only will you tune in and listen to all the other fabulous episodes on this podcast, but you'll come back for the next episode of Helen and Bill Do Retro Cinema, right here on Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Toodaloo. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.